Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I think, I think everybody's been in the situation as a parent where you've been in a store and I, I'm not sure if it's marketing, I don't know, but it seems like there's enough fragile items low enough on the shelf that every parent's had to look at a child at some point in time and say something along the lines of, don't touch, or my favorite is, if you break it, you buy it, because that was, that's, that's the strategy we've employed. Um, if, if you haven't had that experience as a parent, then if you're a, a wife, you've probably had that experience with a husband, right? Now, honey, don't touch that. You know, there, there's actually businesses now that specialize in giving you the experience of breaking things. Let's look here at this, uh, this video about Rage Room. If you need to go to a Rage Room... You've got more disposable income than I do. If you do want to go to a rage room, the closest, you know, you're going to have to travel to Huntsville because uh, that's the closest one. I may or may not have looked it up. Um, I, I found one of these videos that was, I think it was in Chicago, and uh, the guy that ran it was a, was, a, was a therapist, was a counselor, and decided that this was actually pro, uh, helping people more than his therapy uh, clinic was. And so... Uh, so he went into the rage room business. But you know, human beings, we don't need a lot of help breaking things. We're, we're pretty good at it without a lot of assistance. We've been perfecting the art of breaking things, well, quite honestly, from, from the very beginning. Over the last three weeks, we've seen a remarkable journey from our first parents. God made this remarkable cosmos. He filled it with all the flora and fauna that we see today. He set the stars in the sky, fixed the orbits of the planets. He established all the laws that, that govern it and the rules that make it work. And he looked at all that he had done and he said, man, this is, this is good. I don't think he used the man part. He declared it to be good. And then he created human beings, the pinnacle of his creative work. The psalmist said in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. But you know, only human beings have the voice to speak it. Only human beings have the heart to relate to their creator. And so what does God do with his new creation, with these man, this man and woman that he's put in charge? He, he hands the keys over to this shiny new cosmos, to let his image bearers take it for a spin. He tells them to exercise dominion, to fill this new creation, but before they can get it out of the parking lot, they total it. Before the new car smell even faded, they broke the one rule. And as a consequence, a new word enters into their vocabulary, cursed. You know, this was a, a terrible day that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. As a consequence of their, uh, of their treason against the Creator, a new order was put into place. 
in this new order, the perfect husband-wife relationship was stained with conflict. The beautiful call of God to multiply and fill would be a constant reminder of their treason, as it would now involve uh, complications of pain and, and difficulty. The joy of exercising dominion over creation would be complicated by thorns and thistles, painful labor. And God promised that one day humans would taste death and their bodies would return to the dust from which they were made. The crime was committed, the judgment was swift, and the sentences were for life. Yet in the midst of this travesty of human rebellion, we see a remarkable glimmer of hope. By itself, it may not mean much, but in light of the full picture of God's revealed word, we recognize something incredible there, hiding in Genesis chapter 3. In the middle of the worst day, God points to a better day. God points to the best day. This morning, I want us to consider the promise of redemption found there in Genesis chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, I would ask that you would turn there to Genesis chapter 3. And as we consider the context of our key verse, let us stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, well, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Father, we ask your blessings on your word. We pray, God, that as we consider this terrible day in which the human race falls, that God, even in the midst of the terrible nature of the curse, there is the hope and promise of redemption. Lord, we pray that you might bless the words that are spoken here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. 
William Cooper was an English poet and hymn writer. The hymn you know most, or you likely uh, most, most know, would be the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Cooper wrote that. But his life wasn't always one of a model citizen. He studied to be an attorney, but never really practiced. He found himself battling anxiety, even some level of insanity, having to be institutionalized for a season. He attempted to commit suicide, but the rope he used to hang himself broke in the process. Obviously not somebody that you would think of as being a, a, a remarkable hymn writer when you consider his life, but once he came to his senses and recognized that God had more work for him than he was uh, initially prepared to admit, he began to write these incredible songs of the faith. One of his hymns is called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. He sounds like an expert in that department. One of the most profound stanzas in this hymn said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Now, now this doesn't mean that our lives are going to be characterized by ease. Jesus warned us that in this world we would have troubles. It was a guarantee that the Lord gave to us. It doesn't mean that the Christian life is one that is going to be earmarked by great material prosperity as many in our cultural Christianity have come to believe. But it does mean that we should never ever lose hope that God is committed to make all things that have gone wrong to be right again. We find that that hope is, is, is right there revealed to us in the midst of God's sentencing of our first parents for their bold act of treason. Right there in the midst of the judge issuing the verdict, there is, a, there is an element of hope that is, that is contained within the Word of God. But before we look at the hope, let us consider exactly what the Lord said. God declared there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as he casts his, his verdict against the serpent, he tells the serpent these words, I will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. You know, enmity is, a, is an interesting word. I don't know that I've used the word enmity in the, in the course of regular conversation. I don't know, perhaps ever. I think the only time I've ever used the word enmity is when this, talking about Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What is this word enmity? Well, it's more than just an inability to get along. It's not like you and your neighbor who, who, who are having a dispute over something inconsequential. That's not enmity. It, it, enmity is not even the, the difference between, oh, Georgia fans and Tennessee fans and Florida fans and Alabama fans and Auburn fans. That's, that's fun. We have fun with that, but that's not really even enmity. Enmity is something much deeper and much more sinister. Enmity is a deeply seated state of hostility. 
You might describe the ongoing conflict in Israel between Israel and the Palestinians as something of enmity. You might describe the, the way that, that uh, a certain particular group of Muslims feels about the West, that, that would, that's how we would describe as, as enmity, a deeply seated hostility towards another group of people. It is ongoing, and it doesn't let up. It's a word that's only used five times in the Old Testament. It's used, of course, here in Genesis chapter 3. It's used twice in Numbers 35 to describe the, the attitude, the feeling of someone who is about to commit or who has committed first-degree murder, that premeditated type of murder that we have in our legal code. That's described as enmity. It's used twice in Ezekiel to describe the relationship that Israel had with its enemies. It's described as being enmity. So let's be clear. The sour relationship that starts here in Genesis chapter 3 is, is more than just we, we don't get along. You know, us and snakes, we just, we just don't see eye to eye. It's hard because they're down there, we're up here. It's more than just that. And I remember, uh, I remember as, a, as a high school student, we were on a, on a charter bus with something with, with a marching band. I remember if you've ever ridden in a bus, you know you're, you're well up above everybody in, in, the, in the cars below you. And so you get to see some interesting things while people are driving by you. And there was one trip we were on, and there was this massive snake that was in the road. And the snake was, well, you've seen what happens to snakes in the road. I mean, if you're like me, you swerve not to miss them, but to make sure that you, uh, you, you crush their head. That's biblical, right? And there's this massive snake laying in the road. And I remember this car coming up uh, beside us, and there was this petite little lady in the, in the passenger seat. And the, we were at a red light, and this car stopped above the snake. And the woman, you would have thought that she was in Fred Flintstone's car, you know, with no floorboard. Because the woman tried to climb up into the passenger seat as much as she possibly could to distance herself between the snake that was outside of her car, dead in the road, and the bottom of her feet. I mean, I know there's some pretty mean snakes, but I've never seen one that's been able to penetrate the floorboard of a, of a car so, so again, we see this sort of thing still worked out in, in our culture today. But this morning, I want us to understand that this enmity between the serpent and the seed, the offspring of Eve, is woven throughout the entire pages of Scripture. That's the nature of this series, is that we see these themes that are woven through the entire story of the Scriptures. There is enmity at work in the pages of the Bible. And that, that enmity that we see is this enemy who is actively hostile to the people of God and to the work of God. Church, we should recognize today that that enemy has, is still opposed to the work of God that's going on. He's still opposed to the church. And we know that if that enemy can find a foothold in the church of the living God, he will take advantage of it every single time. We know that to be the case. It always has been, and it always will be, until this enemy is brought to his fitting end. Now, in the Word of God, we don't have to look very far to see this, this hostility being played out. As a matter of fact, if you go just one chapter over in the book of Genesis, we encounter the story of, of Cain and Abel. So what's happened? Adam and Eve have started the process of multiplying and filling. And we are introduced to two of their sons, Abel and Cain. I say it that way just to mess with people, because it's always Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel. And so if you say Abel and Cain, it messes up people in their, in their thoughts of this. <laughs> 
So technically, Abel and Cain were both the seed of Eve. They were both Eve's offspring. And we see, though, that, that the lines in this battle are taking shape here in Genesis chapter 4. Abel sought to honor the Lord, the Creator, with, a, with an offering that he, he thought he believed would be pleasing to the Lord. Cain, however, was more interested in himself. And though the son of Adam and Eve, we find that Cain's heart was not really lined in line with with the seed of Eve, his heart was much more in line with the seed of the serpent. And we see that the Genesis 3 enmity is played out in a bloody murder in Genesis chapter 4. Instead of crushing the head of the serpent, which is the word that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15, Cain actually crushes the head of his own brother. And this was just the first of many, many efforts by the serpent to destroy the seed of Eve. However, the revelation of Scripture shows us that all these efforts put forth by the serpent to crush the seed of Eve were merely bruises on his heel. The Genesis narrative reveals something significant. Though Seth would be born, would continue a faithful lineage to the Lord, a majority of Adam and Eve's descendants would actually follow the serpent's lead. It was so bad in this first generation, in these first generations of, of the human race, that a mere nine generations removed from Adam, there was only one of the offspring of Adam that was faithful to the Lord. Just one. And what was his name? Noah. That was it. That was it. And if we're just counting heads here, because that's what, you know, we're good at that. We can count heads. For all intents and purposes, in the book of Genesis, the serpent's winning. Nine generations into it, there's only one faithful man and his family. That's all that's left. Well, well how many is that? If you go back and, and read through the list of Cain's descendants, they're the artists, they're the scientists, they're the culture makers and culture shapers, and, and all we've got working on the Lord's side is a man named Noah. You know, we don't know the pre-flood population of the earth. Archaeology is a little hard to come by for pre-flood things. But some creationists have speculated that due to the long lifespans of these pre-flood individuals, they would live hundreds and hundreds of years. That that long lifespan and those, those many years of, of, of being able to bear children, that the pre-flood human population could have reached the number of three to four billion. Just nine generations of people living a thousand years each. It, got, it could have gotten that large. And in that whole crowd... Only one? One man and his family being faithful to the Lord? But God reminds the serpent, in spite of all of his perceived strength, that it would only be a bruised heel. Even after the waters of the flood receded, Noah's descendants also went after the serpent's seed as revealed in the plains of Shinar at a place called Babel. And even after God scattered the people, he would build a special, unique relationship with a man named Abram through whom God would bring blessings to all nations. You know, the curse of Genesis 3 
seem very much like, as Cooper put it in his hymn, the frowning face of God's providence. However, right beneath the surface of the judgment, we see that God had a plan. The serpent's head would one day be crushed. And as as the church today, we understand the New Testament authors recognize that that this wasn't God's plan B. It wasn't that, that, oh no, it's broke, now what are we going to do? And the Trinity got together and came up with a fix. That's not what happened. The New Testament authors recognize that God had this figured out all along. I love how the Apostle Peter said it in the opening words of his first letter. He says there in chapter 1, verse 17 of 1 Peter, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that, with a, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. God knew when he breathed life into Adam that one day he would have to provide for Adam's ultimate redemption. He knew that. It wasn't a surprise to God that Adam Adam failed. It wasn't a surprise that, that Eve was deceived by the serpent. None of those things shocked the Almighty God. God knew that man he made would ultimately reject him, would commit high treason against their Creator. He knew these things. He knew that Adam and Eve would break his commands. Oh, but I love the New Testament teaching. God shows his love for us while we were yet sinners. What? Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to make us. It was his prerogative to say when Adam and Eve committed treason, to do what would happen to anyone who committed treason today, to eliminate them from from existence. It was his prerogative to do such a thing. Yet remarkably, and perhaps even inexplicably, he he didn't do that. And instead, he took on the curse of death on our behalf. He didn't have to rescue us. He didn't have to to pay the ransom for us. He didn't have to satisfy the wrath that was opposed to us. He didn't have to do those things. But because of his great love for us, because of of his kindness, he did those things for us that we might be rescued from the curse of, of death. He took the death that we deserved that we might have life abundantly that we don't. And so there in in chapter 3, we see the frowning face of God's providence as as He offers this curse against humanity. But right there behind the frowning providence, as Cooper said, we see the smiling face of God because God says one day you will crush the serpent's head. You know, we need to keep in mind that's such a precious truth of Scripture 
that God wants to take your worst day and use it for his glory. It's so hard for us to comprehend this when we are stuck in the midst of the storms and travails of this life. But one of the huge consequences of Genesis 3.15 is that here we have what should be the absolute demise of the human race, but we are left with this incredible sense of hope and optimism that God's got something good in store. In what should have been our undoing, God says, I will rescue you from this mistake. I will rescue this, you, I will rescue you from this error. He will strike your heel, but you will crush his head. You know, I've learned a couple things about life. You may not be in a mess right now. And if you're not in a mess right now, that means one of two things. It means that one, you just came out of one, or two, you're about to go into one. And if, you, if you're in that place, you need to understand that God has some pretty good ideas about how he can be glorified in the midst of your mess. We either believe it or we don't, but Romans is clear. God causes all things to work together for good. Not just the, not most things. Not a few things, but all things. And that word all encompasses all. Friend, it doesn't matter how bad it is in your life. God wants to take that thing in your life and work it together for your good. And you may not see that good this side of eternity, this side of heaven, but God wants to take the worst thing in your life today and He wants to use it for good. That means that all of your triumphs, all the things you celebrate... All the goodness that you can look at in your life and say, this is good, this is satisfying, this is pleasing. Praise God, God wants to take those good things and use them for His glory. But that also means that all the tragedies, all the, all the heartbreaks, all the travesties that you've gone through, God wants to use those things for your good and for His glory as well. Sometimes we want to look at our trials and our tribulations and we want to be angry at God for making us walk through those situations. But it's in the midst of those things where his hand is likely most evident if we know what we're looking for. Adam and Eve were cursed as a result of their own rebellion. But in the middle of all this, God was introducing to us his son, the one who would provide the ultimate rescue that we need. Now, we may have to walk through some pretty deep waters in this life. We may have to go on journeys that we didn't ask for. But God wants us to see how those deep waters might also point us and point others to living waters in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says. It's a great passage. Paul is concluding his letter to the Romans. And his, one of his concluding thoughts is this. Talking to the church at Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet 
If you're an underliner, you need to underline this one. Listen to what it says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath whose feet? My feet. Whoa. You see what he's saying? It's, it's not that there's some cosmic victory where, where God ultimately and finally smashes the head of the serpent. That, that happens. Read the book of Revelation. But Paul here tells us that as Christians, as men and women who love and serve and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that there, is the, there is the potential that, that God wants your feet to crush the head of the serpent. Now, I've heard Christians who want to bind the devil and all that sort of thing. I, I don't want to go there because I understand something profound here is that who crushes the serpent? God does. Where does he crush the serpent? Underneath my feet. So it's not that I get to do it. It's not that, that I get to stomp and, and mash his head into the ground. It's that there's a holy God who wants to use my foot to smash him in the ground. What kind of mess is your life in right now? What kind of stuff are you up against? What sort of temptations and struggles are you dealing with today? Well, fear not. Because the God of peace, <laughs> he wants to crush Satan underneath your feet. God gives us as his children the shared privilege of crushing that snake that has been busy bruising our heels. You may say, Pastor, you don't know how badly bruised my heels are. Don't worry. It's not a fatal wound. But the promise is that his wound is fatal. You may say, you don't know how, how much I've struggled and how much temptation I have succumbed to. Don't worry. The God of peace wants to crush Satan underneath your feet. He wants to see you dance a jig on top of the old snake's head because of the victory you have in Christ. You think the serpent's had a time with you? Don't give up. Because the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. You think the snake has been harassing you too much? Don't give up. Why? Because the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Underneath whose feet? My feet. You think the serpent has got you squeezed in his grip? Don't give up. Why? Because the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Where? Underneath my feet. Are you excited about that? Do you believe that? The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Where? Underneath my feet. Church, it's a reminder for us today to remain faithful to the Word of God, to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, to be steadfast in the gospel until the great and glorious day that we see the serpent meet his demise. And in the meantime, we celebrate the work that God has done. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and join me in prayer? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation.
And I want to encourage you today. Genesis chapter 3 is a sentencing of a trial. A crime was committed. Treason was, was, a, was committed. And the judgment was certain. But even as God was issuing the verdict, he was also commuting the sentence. And listen to the, listen to the consequences here. The Bible says that each and every single one of us sins and falls short, falls short of God's glory. Each and every single one of us comes up short every, in every measure. We do not keep the Lord's commands. We struggle in our thought realm. We struggle in our words. We struggle in our actions. And if we were to stand before a holy God without any sort of protection, any sort of covering, we would melt in the holiness of his presence. Because we are wicked and he is holy. And so the judgment we receive that the wages of sin is death, that judgment is just. And, and we deserve that judgment. But listen, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God both gave the judgment and commuted the sentence. There's some of you here today that you know that if you stood before God in this place, if you stood before Him today in your condition, that you would wither in the midst of His holiness. But He wants today to rescue you. He has provided for your rescue through the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to save you. You do not have to stand before Him condemned because today there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I would implore you today, you don't have to stand before a holy God in your mess and in your sin because there is provision for your forgiveness. If you will but receive the gift that he has extended to you, the gift that he promised in Genesis 3.15 that one day the serpent's head would be crushed, listen, today you can have victory over the devil because God wants to crush the serpent underneath your heel. In just a moment as we sing, I want to give you the chance today to have your sins forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, to be made new, to be able to stand before God, not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus because of the free gift that He wants to offer you today. In just a moment as we stand and sing, I want to give you that opportunity to come down front, take my hand and say, Pastor, I want to know this forgiveness that you speak of. I want to know what it means to be born again. I want to be made new today and be washed by the blood of the Lamb. God, as we prepare to sing and respond, I ask that you move in the hearts of those who stand condemned and help them receive the gift that's extended today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing and respond. If you're here and you need to give your life to Christ, don't let this hour pass without responding to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.